Well, for most of you here tonight, who have been following along our Wednesday night Bible studies, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this tonight was because our young people will no longer be in here on Wednesday nights, and I want them to get at least chapter 17 and maybe some of 18. But for those of you who have been following, you know this. You know that the judgments God executes upon this earth are now by Revelation 17 all but over. In our last study, we noted the pouring out of the seventh vial, the battle of Armageddon, the words of Jesus who said, behold, I come. In fact, just as the seventh angel poured out that seventh vial, he said this in chapter 16, and I love it, verse 17, look at it. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. Remember, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So there goes the last final bastion of his holding. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And folks, all I can say to that, after all the famine and the disease and the war and the destruction and the deceit, after the locusts and all the scorching of the sun and the blood and the water, all I can say to it is done is amen. And yet... Before the Lord Jesus comes with clouds and destroys Satan in his kingdom, this same seventh angel sort of takes the apostle John aside and he says, come over here, I want to show you something. I want to show you the judgment of the great harlot that sitteth upon many waters. Let's read this together, okay? And again, this is a Bible study, so use your Bibles and let's go along in chapter 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels who had had the seven vials and talked with me saying unto me, come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed, of course, spiritual fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away into the spirit of the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration or wonder. And you know something, folks? I also wonder. I wonder. I mean, folks, this is an astonishing astonishing vision of some sort of organization that is going to exist on this earth in the future kingdom of Antichrist. And of course, for centuries, there have been all kinds of speculation and all kinds of interpretation as to who this woman represents. Fortunately, we don't have to speculate entirely. And the reason for that is verse 7. And the angel said unto me, wherefore, why didst thou marvel, John, I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her and which hath the seven heads and ten horns. In other words, he says all the symbolism that we just read about, it's going to be at least somewhat explained. And of course, before we even get to the angel's explanation, we already know, at least we already have some measure, a good idea of who the harlot represents. For example, in verse 5, she has a name on her forehead. That name, it says, is called Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. And then verse 6 says that she is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, it says, specifically of Jesus. 
You see, in Revelation 19 and throughout the entire New Testament, the true church of Jesus Christ is pictured as a chaste virgin, as the bride of Christ. That bride is persecuted and really has been persecuted throughout all of history. Persecuted, put to death, by whom? By false religion. The harlot and her children who have slain the martyrs. Now, the name Babylon itself has tremendous significance here because Babel was founded in Genesis chapter 10 by Nimrod. And of course, the whole purpose for Babel, which was famous for its tower, the Tower of Babel, was to find another way, a different way to God. Babel, Babel means the gate. Of course, El means God, the gate to God. So Babel itself is a fraud. It is man's attempt through his own efforts to defy God. It was an idolatrous pursuit to find another way all the way up to heaven. And so God judged her. God judged her, confounded those languages, the Bible says in Genesis, into many, so that Babel represents confusion and has since continued to refer to false religion as Babylon. It is A great harlot, the Bible says, that has also given birth to many others of its kind. In fact, the empire of Babylon itself, and later, as you know, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, they're all known for idolatry. And all of them, just read your history, look in the Bible, all of them have persecuted the people of God. That's the history of it. But folks, the Babylon of this chapter, the Babylon that is yet to come in the last of the last days... This isn't Nimrod's or Nebuchadnezzar's or Cyrus or Caesar's spiritual harlot. This one is worldwide. This one is drunk, as the Bible says, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. In other words, this is a religious system that is opposing, has opposed, and persecuted and killed the followers of Christ all along. And that's not all. Chapter 17, you'll notice the last line of verse 1 says, that sitteth upon many waters with whom the kings of all the earth, of the earth, have committed fornication. In other words, this harlot is universal in her influence now. Her organization is intertwined, it says, with the kings, the leaders of the entire earth, telling us that this religion is in cahoots with government. Something else. Verse 3, so he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. In other words, she gets her power, this religion, right, this fake religion, gets her power and her authority from the Antichrist. That's who the beast is. Scarlet and purple have always been the dominant colors of Rome, both political as you know, and religious. The soldier's robe, for instance, they put upon Christ. Verse four, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So now we see that this religious organization has a lot of wealth. Precious stones, the golden cup, that cup, that uh, uh, famous uh, grail, if you will, was used for religious purposes. You know what it testifies to? It's great, great wealth. So then on the outside, it looks prosperous. It is. On the outside, it looks blessed and powerful, maybe even beautiful. But inside, it's nothing but corruption. 
And that brings us to what the angel said all of it represents. Go back to verse 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they beheld the beast that was and is not and yet is. Wow. Well, if you've been here in recent weeks, and I hope most of you have, you know that verse 8 settles at least the identity of the beast. He's the Antichrist, the world ruler who dies and is brought to life. Verse 9, here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are, that's present tense for John. You understand that, right? The seven heads are seven mountains on which this woman sitteth. Now, I have a question. What is the city of seven hills? Does anybody know? Say it out loud. All you got to do is ask Alexa. She'll tell you. Ask Siri. She'll tell you. I did it. So I found out. They know. It is Rome. And in case there's any doubt in the mind of John himself, the angel gives a final clue in verse 18. The woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. What city in John's day reigneth, present tense, over the kings of the earth? No hesitation with John. I mean, the Jeopardy music can play. He pulls it out right now. Who was Rome? Correct. Got it right. Always. And in case you're wondering why John, it says, was astonished, the Bible says he's wondering at what the angel has just shown him. I'll remind you that the only church at Rome in his day, the only church at Rome that existed while he was reading this and seeing this, you know what it was like? Lots of wealth? Oh, no, no. Worldwide political influence? Not at all. Persecuting his fellow believers? Not hardly. In John's day, the church at Rome was poor, hiding in catacombs. They were being persecuted themselves and certainly not selling out to the world's political system of Rome at the time. So yeah, he's astonished that some sort of world-influenced ecumenical false church is going to exist in the tribulation period and is going to have its seat in the city of Rome. Now, maybe you're wondering, Pastor, how do you know that? How do you know that sitting upon many waters, for example, means that she has worldwide influence? How do you know that's what the waters represent? Here's how I know. Verse 15, and he saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's how I know. So here again, there is this religious system that is universal in its influence, And interestingly, it pretends to be a quasi-Christian church, if you will. That is exactly why after the beast and the false prophet are done with her, they just go on to destroy it. How many times in a film have you seen this evil person who has his consort or his assistant, and when he's done with him, he says, you've been a, a loyal servant, and now it's time for me to kill you. Verse 16. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate. Wait a minute. They let her ride on them before. No, they're going to hate her. And shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. In other words, somewhere along the beginning of the last three and a half years, the political ruler of the world, the beast, is going to be finished using the religion. 
The false church will have served his purposes. With the ten nations despising her already and anyway, he's going to plunder the riches and then destroy the entire organization. Can I remind us all, beloved, that Satan isn't really willing to share the limelight with anyone, not even with God? So all he's doing with this religion is using it. The worldwide influential church, by virtue of its money and its deception, is going to wield a lot of power, a lot of influence. It's a power that, that she gives to the Antichrist as well. It's a reminder to all tonight that it never pays. It just never pays to compromise for the sake of political or financial gain. Just because the state offers a church clout or access or influence, it doesn't mean it's a good thing. In fact, if anything, it almost always means it's a very bad thing. Pastor, are you saying that because the world, the word Catholic, of course, which means universal, And that it's the city of Rome where the Vatican and all the riches are. They're the greatest landholder on the planet. That this is the Holy Roman Empire that Emperor Constantine started when he had this vision of a fiery cross and the words hoc signo vinces in this sign conquer. And then he started a state religion. Are you saying that the Roman church is identified in Revelation 17? Actually. The harlot of Revelation 17 includes all of the apostate Protestant religions and organizations as well. So you know what? This is just an apostate worldwide church, and it's one that compromises anything and everything for the sake of power and riches. And power, it will definitely have. It'll have it until the beast is tired of having a ride on his back. You know, when Napoleon rose to power under the tide of revolution, in 1804, he, he called, he summoned the Pope, Pope Pius VII, to Paris. He called him to come to Paris to reside over his own coronation. And of course, the Pope agreed, obviously he did, it meant power. But then, at the very last moment, without a word of warning to anyone there, Napoleon changed the order of service. He changed the service so that waiting until the Pope lifted up the crown, he rudely pushed the Pope aside. He took the crown into both of his own hands and then he placed it upon his own head, thus humbling the papacy in the dirt. Well, what happened when Napoleon is mild when compared to what the one great religion will endure at the hands of the beast? And yet it ought to be a reminder again to us That the true Christ, the true Savior, our Lord, he's not going to coronate any earthly king. He's not going to compromise with any eternal truth. He is not ever going to be corrupted by United States president either. And certainly, it's not going to be, he's not going to be pushed aside by a political ruler But the false prophet and spiritual Babylon will, and the reason it will, is really, really eerie and dark. Let me say this. You can take the strangest elements of Marvel's Infinity Stones or Harry Potter's Horcruxes or the forbidden spells of the multiverse 
or Tolkien's 19 Rings of Power, you can take the scariest parts of Stranger Things or any other popular fiction in history. And I'm telling you, it does not compare to the reality of what is going to happen with this future world ruler. Now remember, again, what we noted in our last study, that the single greatest hallmark of this seven-year tribulation period is can be summed up in one word, deception. It is a great time of global deception. Paul told the Thessalonians that after the man of sin or the beast is revealed, he said that the whole earth will be under what the Bible calls strong delusion. So strong, he said, that if it were possible, it's not. He said, but if it were possible, it would deceive even the very elect. I have a question. What could possibly deceive the very elect? Demonism? No. If you're saved and you see demonism, it drives you on your knees and to God. Atheism? No. We laugh at atheism. We know how silly it is. Pantheism? True believers? No. Satanism? The only thing that, if it were possible to deceive a true believer in Christ, is Christ or a false Christ. In other words, when the false prophet and the beast use this one great religion to their advantage before they destroy it, we should understand that it is a religion. It is. At least it's spirituality of some sort. And furthermore, it is a religion that has the vernacular and the trappings in some degree of, of Christianity. In fact, if you look at chapter 18, if you skip ahead just a moment in verse 4. He said, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plagues. Now, we're going to study later on that chapter 18 refers more to the city Babylon, political Babylon, but also, especially here, it also is intertwined with religious Babylon. And God says, he says, to my people, God says to his people, anybody on earth who is left as a believer, get out, get out of her and all of the ones from her. So that again, this is a religious system based in the city of seven hills. And it deceives people that it's the religion of God, that it's the religion of a Messiah, that it's the religion even of a lamb. Remember the symbolism, two horns like of a lamb. And of course, Satan, who the Bible says transforms himself into an angel of light, he's able to use this coming universal religion to deceive so many because, don't forget this, he performs miracles. You get all excited. People get all excited about miracles. Matter of fact, the man himself is a miracle as far as the world will be concerned. I want to remind you what we studied just a few weeks ago. How that the Antichrist would be wounded by the, a deadly wound, assassinated. This is the world leader. He will be assassinated according to the book of Daniel. But then before the eyes of the entire world, he is going to be healed and resurrected. Sort of an imitation of what happened with God's two witnesses, remember, that were killed and then resurrected. And of course, an imitation of Jesus himself who was resurrected. That death and resurrection by the beast is the most deceptive miracle that occurs in the tribulation. We have to look at it again. Turn back a few pages, chapter 13, to fully understand The weirdness that I mentioned that's stranger than all of fiction. 
Chapter 13, verse 1, and I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his ten horns and upon his heads, the names of blasphemy. This is a wild beast. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were feet of a bear, and his mouth is the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. We went through every bit of the symbolism before, if you recall. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. He's assassinated. Shot in the head? I don't know. It says, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. That's Satan. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? And who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things. He's an orator. Blasphemies. And power was given to him to continue 40 and two months, three and a half years. So, note this carefully. As, as far as the deception goes, this miracle was the turning point of the tribulation period. Because this is when they say, who can deny this man? Who can go to war with this man? Who can possibly deny his power? So, when people wonder how the entire world will ever fall down and worship a single ruler. How does a single, it couldn't happen today, honestly it couldn't. It always cracks me up when someone says, oh, so-and-so, Putin, he's the Antichrist, Trudeau's the Antichrist. Come on, the whole world, you wouldn't believe that. But somehow it's going to happen with one person, relatively obscure. He becomes so powerful and so feared so quickly. And how is he going to be worshipped? This is the answer. In fact, let's just do this. Let's take these mysterious statements in chapter 17, verses 8 through 10, at face value, okay? Let's just let them mean exactly what they say and see where it takes us. Because this is what's weirder than horcruxes and and gauntlets and nozgles by far. Chapter 17, verse 8. He says to John, the beast that thou sawest was and is not. So you could say he lived and then he didn't live. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder. The whole earth is going to wonder whose names were not written in the, lamp, in, in the book of life from the foundation of the world. In other words, not saved people. When they behold the beast that was and is not, uh-oh, and now it says, and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. He's calling on us to think about this. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and there are seven kings. Now, follow this carefully. Again, let's just take it at face value and see where it leads us. And there are seven kings related to the seven heads of seven mountains. Rome. Five are fallen. He's telling John, five of them are gone. The one, and one is, one's alive. And the other is not yet come, and when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. What? All right. He was and isn't and was and is of the seventh. There are a lot of heads and kings, a lot of horns here that are symbolic. But it's really not all that complicated if you just keep track. Seven heads, seven mountains, Rome. 
John says it also represents something that comes out of Rome. Verse 10, and there are seven kings, seven kings. Now, John is told that there are seven kings represented in those seven heads. He goes on in the verse, we just read this together, now think about this. He goes on to say that five of them had already fallen by John's time. They're already gone. So, verse 10, and there are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come, and when he cometh, he must continue a short space. He's not, he's not in power very long. One was currently reigning, and one was yet to come, but would have a brief reign. Now, this is a big time spoiler alert. If you take this text, again, at face value, it actually gives us the exact date to the month which all historian, Bible historians know, for the writing of the book of Revelation. You know how? It says that five Roman rulers had come and gone historically. That would be Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. And historically, that puts it at AD 68 or early AD 69. That means that John wrote this during the current reign of Emperor Galba, who was killed in January of 69. Not 1969, that's the Beatles and... (laughs) Pay attention, not 1969. His successor was Otho, who only reigned from January to April in AD 69 because he committed suicide. So the one yet to come for a brief time. What the prophecy is saying here is that the beast could appear at any time after the reign of Otho, right? Therefore, the beast would count as the eighth. Except there's this additional thing. Except for this one strange thing that one of the seven, he's also one of the seven, and furthermore, it says he's also one of the five who had already died by John's time. If you just take it at face value. Look at verse 11. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. See, Pastor, that means that the future emperor of the world empire one day, the beast is already dead as John writes. And you know what? That's exactly what verse eight confirms. Go back. The beast that thou sawest was and is not. That's what it says. And shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in in, in the book of life and the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast, here it is, that was and is not alive, dead, and yet is. Now, folks, don't miss here the magnitude of this astonishing satanic deception. The coming world ruler appears to die. To the world, he's assassinated. Just like Sadat was assassinated and Rabin was assassinated and John F. Kennedy was assassinated and Malcolm X, Shinzo Abe just recently, former premier of Japan, Gaddafi and the list goes on. However, when he's healed and resurrected, revived, it says here, if you take it at face value, that one of the spirits of these five Roman emperors ascends out of the bottomless pit. And in similar fashion to demon possession, though not exactly the same, he inhabits the body of this assassinated leader. Let me read to you, so you don't think I'm nuts. (laughs) 
At least I'm not alone being nuts. This is what one of the theologians, at the, the head of the Greek department at Dallas Theological Seminary, how he describes it. Quote, it lies well within the parameters of satanic power as the powers revealed to us in the Bible to bring a miracle like this to pass. Permitted to release a lost soul from the bottomless pit, Satan engineers a merging of their two human spirits so that a new enhanced personality is created. The result is a truly impressive figure at whom the entire world will marvel and ultimately worship. Now imagine this for just a moment. More and more, the people of this world are starting to believe in reincarnation. Reincarnation is a satanic lie. If you're involved in some Eastern mysticism thing that that promotes reincarnation, know that what you're dealing with is Satan and a cult. But even George Patton believed that he himself was a reincarnated Roman legionnaire. And that before that, he himself was Alexander the Great. He believed that 80 years ago, wrote in his memoirs, and people thought, oh, that's kind of cool. Reincarnation is widespread today, as is every imaginable sorcery or magic or pseudo-miracle or fantasy. So imagine the Antichrist. Imagine the amazement, the astonishment. In the entire world, they witnessed this miraculous healing and resurrection And then a miraculous change in that person's persona. Millions will wonder, how could that happen? Well, one of the great, great world leaders of the past has been reincarnated to unite the world again and to lead it into safety and peace. And who better to do that than a ruler who had once before united the West with the Middle East? Remember the ten-nation confederacy is already in place at this time in the tribulation, all it needs is a leader. Look at verse 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. This explains how the king of the north, as the Old Testament calls him, becomes the beast. That is the ruler of the whole world. Pastor, if this is true, if it's true that one of those past five emperors is allowed to ascend out of the bottomless pit, which do you think it'll be? We just listed them, Caligula and Claudius and Nero. I don't know. And I don't speculate much, but I'm going to speculate now. (laughs) It is interesting to me that it was Caesar Augustus who established Pax Romana, who gave himself the name Augustus, which means God who is described in the Encyclopedia Britannica as the greatest administrative genius in all of history. So I don't know. Maybe Satan will choose the most popular of ancient Caesars to help him deceive the masses. I don't know. Either way, when the leaders of the world join forces with him, they will have chosen the wrong side. Verse 12 says they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast, one hour, one hour. That's a powerful description of their brevity. You know, Job 20 and verse five says, the triumphing of the wicked is short, short. And there is pleasure in sin for a season. What's verse 14 say? Look at it. These shall make war with the lamb, the lamb. And the lamb shall overcome them. 
for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him, see those two words, with him? I circled those. Because guess what? I'm with him. I don't have to wait until there's some global satanic war. To, to ch- I'm with him now in this world. Those that are with him are called chosen and faithful. Pastor, what does it mean for me? If indeed we're all going to be gone at this point in the future, what does all this mean? Well, folks, for one thing, it's a reminder to be with him now. It is a reminder that right now in this present darkness, this present darkness as the New Testament calls our age in which we're living, to be with him and never with the world or the false religions of the world. It's a reminder that it never pays to compromise with or align yourself to the world. And it's a reminder that in the end, as always, Jesus wins. And because of that, God's people win. And because of that, this is a God that you can trust with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And God's people said, let's bow our heads, shall we? Thank you, Father, for the promise at the very beginning of the book of Revelation that there's a blessing, a special blessing to those who read, to those who hear, and those who obey the words of this great book. We ask for that blessing. We ask that you help us. Those who've asked for prayer, Lord, draw them to you as well, please. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.